0: Coming up on today's show, Canada's job market is setting all kinds of records. It's never been better, frankly. So why are we talking about all these negative things going on in the economy? How do they fit together? China continuing to flex its muscles in the Indo-Pacific region, and the James Webb Space Telescope. We've seen the pictures, they're awesome, but what are they? we've talked so much about the cost of living right and and how i mean we've all dealt with it and there's you know reports that we're going to see more of it happening for how long don't know how does it end well that depends on who you talk to some people say there's no question we're headed for a recession others say no there's a there's a possibility we might come out with a soft landing here but you know by and large the way we've approached this has been largely negative right it's when well, when cost of living goes up there's a lot of reasons to feel negative about things but there's a lot of really good things going on economically in Canada right now too and we don't talk about those uh and 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 maybe we should so we're going to have a conversation right now about the fact that you know if you take a look at what's going on in our country in terms of the economy um there is some, some good things happening. So we're going to chat with uh, Tony Stilo now, the Director of Economics for Canada with Oxford Economics. Tony, thanks for joining us. I appreciate your time today. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. You know, are, are we sort of a glass-half-empty country right now? Or are we being overly negative when we look at economics?
1: I don't know. We're, I'm, a, I'm an economist. It's a dismal science. I guess it's tough. There's dark clouds everywhere we look. And brightness, too. Um, so it, I think it's a bit of both. Uh, you, you were talking about the job market, um, but we did see a job decline in, in June. It was it surprised us. We were expecting jobs to just um, slow in terms of addition, uh, job growth. Uh, but the labour market is still tight. Wages are rising, so it's looking for the good
0: news. Trying to get more job seekers, and there, there's a lot of vacant jobs available for folks. Um, When we take a look at that job market, it's never been this good, right? I mean, in terms of unemployment figures and things like that, we have never been in a better position in Canada.
1: The unemployment rate dropped to a record low 4.9%. A record since they've been keeping staff on a consistent basis since the mid-70s. So you're right. But what we did see in the latest data the past few months is a drop in labor force participation. So fewer job seekers. Some of those, it looks like uh, a good portion of those are elderly workers who may have taken pre retirement uh, or retirement early. Um, But, um, and that's actually one of the things that's constraining our ability for the economy to grow, is that we do need that. supply of labor. So again, we're hoping that the uh, higher wages that we're seeing, the higher wage rates that are are being offered, are going to attract more people into the workforce.
0: You know, when we take a look at this, of course, there is a consumer confidence index that weighs heavily in all of this. It's something that's monitored and something that's tracked. So if we are taking a look at this as perhaps we're feeling a little negative and a little apprehensive and nervous about where we're going and things like that, um, that can have real world implications in terms of what happens within the economy, right? Absolutely.
1: Um, I, I don't tend to look at little, you know, uh, volatility in the sentiment, but when you see large movements in either direction, uh, where it's a sharp deterioration, that's something I would pay attention to. Because usually when it does that, it doesn't bounce back, then you're into the kind of new, new, new paradigm. And, and that's the concern I have, that we have seen a deterioration in, in confidence. Uh, we are a glass Uh, full folk who are still calling for a soft landing, but recession risks we think are
0: rising. So depends if we want to be totally funny today. I'm happy to talk about both. (laughs) Yeah, when you take a look at where we're headed with the way things are going, any idea on, I mean, the one question I keep getting asked by people is how long is this inflation going to last? Is there any way of knowing that, Tony?
1: Well, it's really difficult because we're we're in an environment where a lot of this inflation is coming from external sources. You've got supply disruptions. You've got a war in Ukraine. And it's, it's not all uh, domestically driven by just that tight labor market. We're just now starting to see uh, wage rates rise. Um, but, but that you can't just squeeze w- workers and say that's where we're going to bring down inflation. That's what I'm concerned about, that an overly aggressive uh, Bank of Canada could tighten uh, monetary policy too tight, too much, and then tip us into that downturn. Um, but what we're looking for, we're looking for inflation to actually peak near 8% in the coming months. We've already seen oil prices and, and other commodity prices start to ease um, and, and, you know, we're hoping that again, this is what makes it difficult. We've ratcheted up our forecast in recent months and largely it's related to things outside of our control. It's things, uh, events like w- w- geopolitical uncertainty and the war in, in, in Ukraine. But assuming that that doesn't uh, escalate and it does. Hopefully, have some uh, closure and end. Uh, we think that um, uh, we'll, we'll see inflation peak this coming year and actually start to come down. Uh, we're looking that to be both from um, uh, the supply side improving, both from uh, hopefully the war kind of um, ending and uh, supply chains loosening up. There's a, a lot of investment going on around the world that um, is is trying to attack this. Uh, supply chain issue that you've heard about to no end. And their supply constraints are everywhere.
0: Yeah, absolutely. No question about it. Um, And like you say, there is uncertainty built into this. So you can't be 100% certain as to what's going to happen, especially when you're dealing with an international conflict, uh, like what's happening in Ukraine. Um, But you're still optimistic that we're not necessarily headed for a recession here. This might be able to turn around without getting to that point.
1: That's our baseline, but even uh, yesterday's move by the Bank Canada to raise rates by 100 basis points, that surprised us. We had expected a, a significant rise, 50 to 75 basis points, and we're looking for it to, to peak. They basically raised it to two and a half points, which is the highest it's been since 2008, uh, and the biggest jump we've had since in 1998. It was a, a quite a big move. The bank said that they want to front end load all of those increases so that we don't have this piecemeal approach over a lengthy period that's fine as long as we don't push rates too high we're expecting the policy rate uh, to peak at about three percent in the fall and then hold there for a while before it comes down we've got a lot of underlying vulnerabilities highly indebted households a housing correction that we had been looking for and it's quite a substantial one that we actually need is underway but we are we're much more interest sensitive uh, in Canada than we have been in the past, and that other advanced economies are, quite frankly. So, if we see that just kind of raising rates to three percent, yeah, um, we think we're likely to soft, see a soft landing. If they do another hundred basis point rise, yeah, uh, in the next month or two, then you're starting to tip the scales, and yeah. that's when we really are worried. We we have a model. We look at it. We think the odds of a, a recession in the next 12 months is about. 40%. That's that high. Um, you know, it's almost in the territory where it's the most likely scenario. So we're really close to that. It's almost a, a razor's edge, and, and um, it's a tough thing to do. It is. Uh, and I know the Bank of Canada is also aware of these vulnerabilities I've mentioned. Hopefully, they'll kind of front end load this, take a look at how their rates have affected the economy, and kind of uh, then approach it more um, cautiously.
0: Yeah it's it's going to require a very very delicate touch. Tony, thanks so much for the insight. I appreciate you joining us today. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you there. Uh, that's Tony Stilo who is Director of Economics for Canada and Oxford Economics. To be fair, the war in Ukraine has really dominated a lot of the discussion about any, you know, geopolitical conflict for the past few months. Rightfully so, it makes sense, right? But at the same time, um, other hotspots continue to demand attention. The Indo-Pacific region, as it's called, uh, continues to present some challenges for the West. This month, NATO was talking about how important that region is and how China is a challenge that must be faced. So so what is the plan? Where does Canada fit into all of this? We're going to have a discussion with Margaret McQuig Johnson, who is a senior fellow at the University of Ottawa's Institute for Science, Society and Policy, and the University of Ottawa's Graduate School of Public and International Affairs. Margaret, thank you for joining us. Appreciate your time. Good to be with you again, Chase. Um yeah, let's just start with what's happening in that region, get a bit of an update, why there is added attention. We've seen we've seen an escalation in activity there, right?
2: Yeah, that's right. Just in the last few years, China has become much more aggressive uh, with its neighbors. We know, for example, that uh, they've got military flights over Taiwan territory. They've actually managed to push back the borders in India and Bhutan so that China takes more of their territory. They've got fishing fleets out all over the world, overfishing uh, in the in the seas of other countries and uh, most concerning recently was the uh, maneuvers that uh, uh, the PLA jet planes were de- taking against Canadian planes and Australian planes. Uh, That were in doing uh, surveillance um, in the waters uh, uh, in the the air near uh, what China would like to claim as their own territory. So we're facing a more aggressive China, that's for sure.
0: Yeah, and as you say, with the fighter jets and all the rest of that stuff, and it's not just Canada. It's Canada. It's Australia that have also been, you know, targeted by some of these actions. They've condemned it. I've seen the Prime Minister talking about how some of this stuff has to stop and they can't continue, Um, issued statements, that sort of thing. But clearly that's not going to be enough, right?
2: No, and, and, you know, I myself have seen some really nasty business practices in China uh, against Canadian technology companies. And so I proposed back in 2019 that we develop an Indo-Pacific strategy that would allow uh, Canadian companies to diversify away from China uh, so that they could uh, manage their risk there more effectively and broaden our, and deepen our relations with other countries in the region. And so that's uh, that the, the government has been working on such a strategy since. Uh, 2019. Um, The U.S. has uh, uh, Indo-Pacific strategy. So does India, Japan, Mm -hmm. New Zealand. Even the European Union has an Indo-Pacific strategy.
0: Do we? I mean, like you say, I mean, do we need to actually come up with something? What do we have in place? Wasn't there something a few years ago, at least talk about coming up with
2: a plan? Well, in fact, the government said in December of 2019 that it was going to to develop a China policy or a China framework. And a year later, they said, well, no, there wouldn't be anything published. Uh, But uh, the minister had been using expressions like uh, the China of 2020 is not the China of 2016, meaning it had uh, become more aggressive, Uh, national security would be the prime criterion for the Huawei decision. We finally have that out. Um, But they decided not to publish a China framework, and it it appears that they didn't want to poke the dragon. And my concern now is that they may similarly not publish an Indo-Pacific strategy per se that shows how Canada understands its own uh, relationship with the region and will instead just have more ministerial speeches.
0: Yeah. So we don't know if there even is a a playbook that we're operating from and and we just have to hope that there is. I mean, if you take a look at what's gone on, the two Michaels, the Huawei saga, I mean, the list goes on. It It seems like we should have a pretty clear framework and a pretty clear strategy in place.
2: That's right. And I know the Department of Global Affairs Canada has been working on such a thing. They've held many consultations with other uh, governments in the region. Um, and ministers have visited other countries. Like, you know, just recently, Minister Jolie went to Vietnam and Indonesia and was supposed to table something in the House when she got back, but nothing was, nothing was announced. And uh there are lost opportunities in this too, because we could be enhancing our relations with other countries on security, on population health, which it relates to pandemics, on technology and R and D, higher education, uh things like sustainable fisheries management where Canada is a leader in that. Um, but we haven't got any Uh, new policy or new strategy for doing that and we also don't have the resources we need something that's comprehensive and coherent uh, that's operational and that's funded and we don't have anything like that at this point i'm I'm hoping that they'll develop something like that but i fear it may be just something very thin Uh, and we need to really demonstrate that we have a commitment to the region
0: So we need to partner. I mean, like you say, in terms of what we can really do as a, as a global force, we like to think we're bigger than we are sometimes. And I don't know if China's really all that concerned about Canada, but we can partner. There's other com- uh, countries that are in similar positions and, and together we might be able to actually have some some influence, right?
2: Yeah, that's right. And in fact, um, we can partner with like-minded countries like Australia, yep. New Zealand, Japan, South Korea. But we also should be partnering with other governments that have uh, that don't have our form of government, like Vietnam, for example, where a lot of um, Western countries uh, companies are leaving China and going to Vietnam, Cambodia, uh, Thailand, uh, and setting up shop there because. You know, uh, they are facing increasing risk in China as it overregulates a lot of the companies that are there now from the West.
0: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's a situation that demands attention. Um, Margaret mcquaig Johnson, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate you joining us again today.
2: Good to be with you.
0: Take care. That is Margaret mcquake Johnson, a senior fellow at the University of Ottawa's Institute for Science, Society, and Policy, and the university's Graduate School of Public and International Affairs. And uh, yeah, I mean, it's a situation we've talked about before, right? And uh, this Canada, uh, this country, and this the, the Liberal government, in my mind, has been really negligent on the Canadian China file, and frankly, has been incredibly weak. Uh, there has been next to no pushback, at least publicly, not that we've seen. And the list of, you know, things that China has done, and, and I've likened it before to like the schoolyard bully, and we just we just keep taking it, like, you know, the the two Michaels, um, the, the situation with the fighter pilots. I mean, the, the list goes on, and they really clearly show that they don't care. Uh, they have no respect for what our government's going to do in response. And to this point, why would they? Space, the final frontier.
1: Sir, the possibility of successfully navigating an asteroid field is approximately 3,720
0: to 1. Yeah, space, the final frontier, and we're getting a better view of it than we ever, ever have before. And you know what? It's dazzling, it's mind boggling, it's beautiful, it's glorious. But I don't know what I'm looking at. <laughs> we're told what it is. It was funny. I was watching uh, William Shatner, some clips from him. Uh, he was on, I think it was Anderson Cooper, and the, both of them were saying, you know, it's amazing. It's incredible. I don't really know what it is. Uh, so we're going to try and get some insight into why these pictures were chosen, why they were shown to us as some of the first views from the James Webb Space Telescope, what they are, and what we might expect in the future. And to walk us through that, we have Lawrence M. Krauss joining us now. He is a theoretical physicist. He is an author. He's the president of the Origins Project Foundation and the host of the Origins Podcast. His newest book coming out next year is The Known Unknowns, The Unsolved Mysteries of the Cosmos. Uh, Mr. Krause, thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate your time.
3: Uh, No problem. Happy to be with you, finally.
0: Yeah, yeah. Now these pictures, of course, they've made headlines all around the world. Uh, The president introducing the first ever picture, everyone else gasping at what they're seeing, but uh what I mean they're beautiful and they're they're amazing to look at but I think for a lot of us it's kind of like okay um like what are we seeing how important is it to understand what it is that we're seeing not just how pretty they
3: are Well look I mean it's not going to produce a better toaster or a faster car but it it will help us answer questions that I think everyone's had like are we alone in the universe how did we get here, yeah. and, and, and really the fundamental questions that all of us ask. Because what James Webb is designed to do is two things. I mean, it primarily has two missions. One is it's going to look farther than any telescope has ever looked to try and see the very first structures that formed in the universe within, a, say, 100 million years or so after the Big Bang, the first stars, the first galaxies. We'd like to know how, what, what was the process by which our galaxies formed and uh, try to understand our own galaxy, which is really relevant to understand eventually the formation of stars and our own earth and our existence so there are there are also chicken and egg sort of uncertainties we see in the center of every galaxy, including our own, or at least the center of almost every galaxy, um, a supermassive black hole. Now, the question is did the black holes form first and the galaxies coalesce around them right or did or or did it happen that the galaxies were there and Stars died and collided and eventually formed a black hole. We don't have the answer to that. But we're going to look, be able to look. As I say, this telescope is designed to look at what's called infrared radiation, because, which we can't see from the surface of the Earth because the, the, the you know, atmosphere absorbs it for the most part. But more importantly, objects that are very far away, at the other edge of the universe basically, uh, are moving away from us very fast. And, we, and, and the laws of physics say that the light from those objects is stretched out. And so the visible light from stars gets stretched into the infrared range. Right. And that's why this has been designed to be able to look so far away. But the other really neat thing about being able to measure infrared radiation is you can look at the radiation being emitted or absorbed by the atmospheres of planets around other stars. And in fact, one of the, one of the images that was shown was exactly that, what's called the spectrum of radiation absorbed by that It was a a Jupiter-sized planet very near its star. And what you could see was water vapor in the atmosphere. What they're eventually going to hopefully do is be able to look at enough planets to be able to look for what we would call biosignatures to see if there's evidence. For example, on Earth, the oxygen on earth came from life there was no free oxygen in the atmosphere on earth life produced it with little breaths over billions of years and so that alone wouldn't be the smoking gun but if we saw oxygen in the atmosphere we might look for other signs of life and we might be able to answer that fundamental question is there life elsewhere in the universe so those are two of the known missions and two of the images that were, were 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 released Related to those two things, looking farther than we've ever looked before, or as as you'd say in Star Trek, boldly going where no one has ever gone before, and uh, and also looking for life elsewhere. Yeah, I mean the other the p- images were pretty, basically. <laughs>
0: exactly, they, they they are. They're incredible to look at. But I was wondering, like you say, I mean, the pictures were chosen for a reason. There was a reason that they were presented. You know, in the order that they were presented and why they were the first one. Why do you think it was that? I call it the wide shot, sort of the establishing yeah. shot where you can see all of these galaxies. Um, it's mind-boggling. It really trying to comprehend what you're looking at is very difficult to do.
3: Yeah, it is when you, especially when you realize that first of all that image of that every, except for the six stars, which you can sort of see because yeah. they have the, those the octagonal patterns around them, um, every dot in that, in that image is a galaxy. Each galaxy contains h- billions or hundreds of billions of stars. There are thousands of galaxies in that image. And the amazing thing about that image is it's, it, it, the, the region it encompasses on the sky, it's only about the size of a grain of sand if you held it at arm's length. See, that's namely when you look at any dark spot in the sky at night. If you, I happen to live in the country and I can look up and see the dark skies, and if I look out and in any given dark spot in the sky, well, if you took a, 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 a made a hole with your with your hands and about the size of a Canadian dime in that region, if you could look far enough with telescopes as you can now with the, with that telescope, you'd see between a hundred thousand and a million galaxies. It's just—it oh is really mind-boggling, and it's hard to comprehend. And but the universe—but that's what's great about the universe. It's, yeah. um, it, it's hard to comprehend, but we try, and that pushes the limits of our imagination. And as a scientist, that's what it's all about.
0: As a scientist, like you say, uh, the one picture—I can't remember what they call it. It's—it's it's the birth of a star. It's beautiful. It's—it's—it's it's, yeah. it's absolutely right. dazzling. I have no idea what I'm looking at. Do you? I mean, explain to me how that shows the birth of a star.
3: Well, what what there what, there's two images. One you're seeing is the death of a star. Actually, the one with the rings around it is yeah. what a star does when it's dying. It expels matter at a huge rate, and that matter smashes into the interstellar medium and causes it to light up. And that's why you see the sort of rings about it for thousands of years. That matter has been 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 moving away. But there's another that that other beautiful region, uh, the Carina Nebula. I think it, it where you see basically what looks like cliffs of yes. gas. Yeah. Yeah. And there's a region that's been cleared out, and, 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 and that's related to the birth of stars because in the early stages of star formation, including our sun, the, the, our sun was actually, during that period of forming, the sun is actually something like 10,000 times brighter, and there's x-rays being emitted. It's a very turbulent time, and what that does is it, that energy expels all the gas in the region around it. And that except for the material that's that's gravitationally bound to it, which eventually form a solar system, and what you can see that blue region is the region where the gas has been expelled and pushed away, and that's why it looks like it's piled up into cliffs on the other side and and you know and you know what you may people may say, "Big deal, what's yeah. this got to do with me?" And the answer is, and this to me is the most poetic thing uh, about the universe, every atom in your body, essentially came from a star that exploded because in the big bang only hydrogen helium and a little bit of lithium were created but the carbon the nitrogen the oxygen the iron all the stuff that's not relevant for us to be alive was created in the fiery cores in the inside of stars and the only way it could get into your body now is if stars exploded and released it and there, there may be atoms in your left hand that came from different stars than your right hand so you're, you're really stardust and looking at the birth and death of stars is really relevant because it's really the material that ultimately led to your own existence.
0: Amazing. Absolutely amazing. Um, Incredible. Going forward, I mean, we're just at the start. Uh, What do you expect to see? I mean, we're told that we're going to get answers to some of the great questions of humanity, as you mentioned earlier. Uh, How high are your expectations for the James Webb Telescope?
3: Well, as I as I, uh, I wrote a piece recently, I'm, my, my feeling always is every time we open a new window on the universe, we're surprised. Yeah. And so, yeah, I know what the James Webb telescope is designed to look for, but I expect that the most interesting things will be the things that I haven't even thought about yet. And that's, that's what's happened every time we've done that. And so I... I anticipate being surprised, in fact, generally that's what I love about science every day i'm surprised if i 'm not surprised
0: yeah and uh, so one we'll of the guys from NASA was saying we're going to answer questions we haven't even thought of the questions yet
3: yeah yeah exactly and that, that, I mean but that's what that's why we have to keep looking out because the imagination of the universe is greater than the human imagination. If we stop looking we'll we, you know we'll, we'll stop coming up with, with with new ideas and new understanding it's really looking at the universe that forces our mind to go in different directions.
2: Yeah. Amazing. And uh,
3: so, so so I'm anticipating I hope I hope I'll be surprised. And even if I'm not in the near term even answering those two questions about is there life elsewhere in the universe and how do we get there? Yeah. That'll be pretty good.
0: Yeah. <laughs> we can live with that. Uh, Lawrence, yeah. thank you so much for your time. I really really appreciate it. Sure, no worries, thanks. That is Lawrence Krauss, who is a theoretical physicist and author and president of the Origins Project Foundation. As I said, he hosts a podcast called The Origins, and uh, he's got a pretty good handle on this stuff. It's like he says, part of the fun of this is uh, the fact that it's so hard to understand. That's what makes it cool, I think, because you can sort of just try and, you know, you can feel your mind get twisted. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts, And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and
2: review us.